0: Good morning, my name's James. I'm one of the pastors here at FEC, and it's been my joy to guide us through this opening part of a series that we've called Inhabit, where we look at some of the habits of our life, not so much trying to poke fun at each other or make people feel guilty about some of our poor habits, but actually to look at habits that we can choose to develop in our lives. The opportunity to become a little more intentional about some of the things that we actually do. Because the scriptures do remind us that we need to guard our hearts where often these habits live, because they are the heart as the wellspring of life. We're really thinking about the choices we make in particular. How do I want to live so that I can be the person I want to be? Some choices, life choices that people make are quite unusual, what they want to be when they grow up, in a sense. I was reading a story earlier this week of a lady, and she's made a particularly unusual career decision. She was awarded her PhD at Duke University in art and art history and visual studies, I guess, in a bright career ahead of her. But her big goal in life is to build this ginormous architectural tower and then place it in a city that has really struggling with pollution problems. She's identified three that it might be, LA, Beijing, or Bogota. And her idea is to build this big thing that has a mechanism to catch particles that are in the air, solid particles, filter them out, somehow funnel it down to the bottom of this big tower, and turn it into ink. I have no idea how she makes the ink. And what she's going to do with the ink is interesting. She plans to give it, she says, to poets and thinkers and calligraphers and ask them to answer this question. What would you write with the ink that is literally the air that we breathe? Well, there's an unusual way to spend your life, but it seems as though she's doing well out of it. She won a Guggenheim Fellowship for her idea and is actually getting ahead with what she wants to do. Our lives are generally a little more straightforward. How would you get on with last week's habit when we talked about kneeling prayer, praying three times a day? Anybody try? Is the floor hard, cold? Yeah, that's not always so easy, that sort of thing. I get that. I've heard some great stories, though, from many of you that have been doing this and taking the time to intentionally pray at breakfast time or when you wake up, at lunchtime, before we're going to bed. And it's impacting our lives as we choose to spend those moments with God. If you weren't here around last week and you want to know what we're talking about, you can easily watch online previous week's message if you'd like to and figure that out. And if you'd like hold of the prayer guide that we've created for those times of prayer three times a day, simply text the word prayer to the number on your screen. The online hosts will put the link for you right now. And we'll make sure that you get the opportunity to download that and find your way forward. And if you've got a story you'd like to share, we'd love to hear it. We love telling your stories in our online blog. So take the time and send that in. Kneeling prayer, it's an unusual choice too in a sense. It's awkward, it's difficult. How do you do this? People are watching. It certainly won't get you a Guggenheim Award or make you rich. But we did learn that it's a keystone habit. It's a habit that holds other things in place. And it's a habit of embrace, something we choose to do. You don't have to. We choose to. We try to make a difference in our own lives by consciously doing something that can shape us into who God's calling us to be. Well, if that was an embrace habit, today we're going to think about a habit of resistance, something we're going to try and push back a little in our lives, something to resist, if you like, and replace. We've called it First Things First. Let me read a few verses to you from John's account of the life of Jesus. John chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a really long chapter. And so we're going to pick up at verse 66. Just a little encounter toward the end of this day's events. Verse 66. Jesus has been saying some pretty tough stuff. And we read like this. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went with him. So Jesus asked the 12, his 12 closest friends, the 12 disciples, we call them, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's a brief encounter, it's unusual, but if you actually take the time to look through all of chapter six, if you'd like to later on, or you can glance at it right now if you've got a Bible handy, Jesus has been out and he's with a host of hungry people. He's been preaching for a very long time. Jesus preaches way longer than me. So I'll never be complaining about how long I take. He always took longer. And people are getting hungry and they're getting fed up. And they're looking like, how long is this going on? We want our lunch. And so Jesus, he gives his disciples a test. It's what it says in verse 6. He's going to see how compassionate they can be, how resourceful they can be. Looking at all these people in need. And he says, go sort out the lunch. Well, they don't have enough money. They don't have enough food, and they're kind of stuck. What are they supposed to do? What's the plan, Jesus? Eventually, they find a boy. You read the story in chapter 6, and he's got himself five loaves and two fish. Not a whole lot, but it's what he has, and it's what they can bring. And that's okay, because it's a good thing to bring your, whatever you've got to Jesus, And in chapter 6, we read about Jesus feeding 5,000 people with this. I'm thinking, that's not a lot. I mean, five loaves of bread. Who sends their kid out with five loaves of bread for his lunch? Like, how hungry can the boy be? But they're not making, like, bread the way we do, and you pick it up in a superstore in a plastic bag. It's more likely like a pita bread, a flatbread. He's got five little slices. That's what it means. And he's got his fish. Now, I've been to the place where this took place, where this incident happened where the fish came from the lake. Somebody grilled me up and cooked me one of those fish. It is the nastiest looking fish I have ever seen in my life. And I figured out how Jesus fed 5,000 people with this. He cooked the fish. He gives it to the first person who says, oh, no, thank you, and he passed it along. I could feed 5,000 people with one of those fish. Nobody wanted it. But in reality, whatever was going on, In reality, Jesus made the food stretch. It stretched so much that when it was time to tidy up and do the dishes, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. That's a lot of stuff. The picnic was like a little taste of heaven for the people who were present there that day. And so Jesus, when meal's over, he decides he needs some alone time. The well-fed They want to start an insurrection and make him king. They really do. You can read it in there. And Jesus is having none of it. So he takes off, goes off into the mountains somewhere and chooses to spend some time to rest and to pray. His friends, they get in their boat. They row kind of over to the other side and somewhere in the way in the dark, they see Jesus wandering around on the water. He doesn't even bother, stop to really do anything with them; just walks past them, keeps going, strange. But the next day, these crowds, they all show up again. They're all looking for Jesus. But this time, things are really different. Uh, There's no free lunch in next next encounter. In fact, Jesus takes them to task. And in verse 26, he says this to them. Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. These people are chasing after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They're not really interested in who Jesus is. They just want what they can get out of him. He's the divine caterer. He puts on a good spread and it's free. And they want more. They don't mind him being the Messiah. Like if you want to be in charge, that's okay. Just so long as they get what they want. But that's not what Jesus is about. And in verse 27, he says this to them. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. What truly matters most is not what Jesus can give you or do for you. What matters most is who Jesus is. They might get the free bread and the free fish. But a picnic with Jesus won't really satisfy your soul. It'll still leave you empty. And Jesus goes on to explain to them, I am the living bread, he says, that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, that's a tough response. They didn't really understand it. What are we talking about here? Bread from heaven eating you, Jesus? What's going on? They don't get it. Nobody really seems to understand. But in so many ways, Jesus is asking them, what do you want? What do you really want? Do you want bread that will go moldy after a few days? Or do you want bread that is eternal life? You see, it's not just a question really about bread that you're baking in the oven, it's much broader. He's asking, are we focusing, as much as the people at the picnic, are we focusing simply on our own stuff, our own physical or emotional, financial, relational desires? Is that what matters most? Is that what you want Jesus to do for you, to help you find a partner or to get a better job? Or to win the lottery like that girl in Ontario the other day, first time she played at university, got 40-something million. And we just want Jesus to make us happy, pass the exam, find new friends. But Jesus offers something else. His bread is a gift. You can't work for it, nor can you have it on your own terms. His gift of eternal life demands complete Allegiance Following Jesus Being a disciple It demands everything It demands the complete surrender of our lives And of our desires It means that we no longer get to call the shots About our own lives We don't get to determine in advance Who Jesus will be or what he will do for us He gets to define what it means for us What it means for me To follow him and that's tough in our culture of self-expression of I'll do me and you do you of my own life being self-revelatory don't give me advice don't be telling me what to do we're not looking for somebody who's going to take charge and the majority of the crowd who were real happy with the free food the bread and the fish they walked away this isn't what they were looking for they're looking for Bruce Willis to come along and Jason Statham to sort out the Romans and and also, if there's free food, that would help too. They turned back. They no longer went with him. It's all asking too much. And off they went. What about us? What about you? Do you believe that Jesus alone can satisfy the ravenous hungers of your heart? Do you believe that only Jesus can fill this God-shaped void that we have within? Have you turned your life and your attention towards him? He's offering real, intimate, and personal friendship. An offer that we accept from Jesus and we discover that he saves us from our sins, to use some Bible language. He changes everything about us. He forgives us from the past. The guilt is gone. The shame is over. Freedom comes our way. The hunger within is satisfied. He gives the gift of abundant life and life eternal. But they walked away. Not for me. So Jesus asks his 12 closest friends, do you all also want to walk away? Will you leave me too? It's a haunting question. Peter's the mouthpiece of the group or more likely the foot and mouthpiece of the group. He's always getting it wrong. He's quick to answer and not so smart. But this time he gets it right with a pitch perfect reply. He says as we look, Simon Peter answered him, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else could they go? None of us can really find God by ourselves. He has to come and reveal himself to us. We need God to show himself to us. And that's what's going on right here and now in this story. It's what Jesus is getting at. He's the bread of life, He has the words of eternal life because Jesus reveals God. He is the Word of God. And then, Scripture in our Bible we have the record of that revelation. How do you know God is? By studying nature. You can learn some things doing that. It's interesting. And yet you'll only ever really discover the depths and passion, his crazy love for you as you turn to your Bible and read it and discover how wildly in love God is with you. How would you know about why Jesus died? Reading ancient Roman or Jewish history, you can find references there. The bare facts are there. But you won't discover the depths of human need, the depths and the terrible price that Jesus would go to to break the power of sin and death in our lives. You'll only discover that as you begin to look at your Bible and discover the extent of God's passionate care and concern and love for you. How do we discover God's purposes for our life? By asking each other, reading some books. They help, sure. But ultimately, it's only in Scripture, in our Bible, that we truly discover the amazing life that God is calling us to and leading us towards. That's why the Apostle Paul once wrote to one of his young pastor friends, and he said this. All Scripture... Is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Scripture, our Bible, it's inspired, or you could use the words God breathed. We use the word inspired in all sorts of ways. Some mornings I get inspired to make more than toast or cereal for breakfast. There's eggs and bacon and pancakes. Yesterday was waffles, though I have to be honest and say I wasn't inspired to do that. That was my wife. She actually got up, made them from scratch, and they were really good. I was just being lazy. But sometimes we have that kind of sense of inspired. Sometimes we we talk about musicians or artists or authors being inspired in the way they wrote. But this is more than just having a genius idea or waking up feeling motivated to do something different. Paul is saying that the words in the Bible are literally "Ah, God-breathed. Having asthma is really good for that. It makes a great sound. (laughs) How it happened is a mystery. After all, the books and letters in our Bibles, all 66 of them, They're written by real people. Luke tells us in his account of the life of Jesus that he engaged in painstaking research for a considerable period of time so that he could write his account the life of Jesus. And you can tell writing styles are really different. Like, look, he's very orderly because he spent all his time in this research. He was a medical doctor, a physician. And so you'll often hear more stories about Jesus healing people there than anywhere else. And then he goes into kind of graphic detail about what was wrong with them and how Jesus helped them. It fits who he was. Mark and the other band, Mark just watched action movies on TV all the time. And so if you read Mark's gospel, almost every sentence begins with the word immediately. Jesus has no time to breathe. He certainly doesn't eat or go to the bathroom or have a nap. All you've got is immediately. Immediately Jesus got up. Immediately he walked down the road. Immediately he sat down. Immediately he started teaching. Immediately he stopped teaching. Immediately they went somewhere else. It's like exhausting reading Mark's gospel. And while we may not know how each author was inspired to write what they did, we know that what they wrote was what God intended. Peter, again, with another good comment, says this, No prophecy ever came by human will, but by men and women moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. In a sense, he's telling us, there's a double authorship. Each part of our Bible was written with a real human being, a real human person in a time and place and circumstances of their own. Some we know a lot about, like the Apostle Paul, big part of his life stories in the book of Acts. Others we know way less about. But in each instance, we know that the words that they wrote, the things that they gave to us were God's words. Paul would write again to his friends and he said, we also consistently give thanks to God for this, that when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a mere human word, but as what it really is. God's work, God's word, also at work in you believers. God's word at work. In the book of Hebrews, we read something similar. Indeed, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit and joint from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is living. It's active. It gets stuff done. What does that imply? It means that God's word brings new life. It means that when my life is falling apart, when my life has come undone, when I feel I've come to the very end of my rope, it's not the end for God. God can come in and rescue and recreate my life. He gives us a whole new life. He lets us begin again, a fresh start. And the Bible will see it being called born again. It's that dramatic. I know you can't go back into your mother's uterus again. That doesn't work. But being born implies a brand new life, not just dusting you off. You don't just turn over a new leaf, you get a whole new book. It's a whole new life. You start over, the slate is clean. Jesus' little brother James once wrote, in fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave birth to us by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creature. The word of truth brings new life, it gives birth to new life. Do you need a new life? You see, without the word of God, we wouldn't really know much about Jesus dying on a Roman cross. We wouldn't really know much about what it means to trust him or how to really throw our lives upon him and give our allegiance to him. We wouldn't really know that God has a magnificent purpose for each one of our lives. We wouldn't know any of the things that we need to know to keep on growing in our relationship with God. We wouldn't know it without his word. But God's not silent. He's chosen to reveal himself to us. He knows everything about us and he wants us to know about him too. He wants to give all of us that gift of new life. His word brings new life. In God's word, it can energize faith within us. Sometimes faith can feel elusive. There's lots of days it's real easy for me to believe in God and faith feels strong and I'm getting somewhere. And there are days I wonder, is he really there? Does he remember me? Can you hear me? Doubt is honest, and it's okay. You don't need to cover it up or hide it. It's part of the journey. But God's word can energize faith. Paul wrote to his friends in Rome, and he reminded them, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. And that's the big difference by reading scripture and reading any other book that you enjoy or a self-help book that you perhaps use to fix something that's going on in your life. They're full of good advice. I'm not knocking on them. I've read a lot of helpful books. They can tell you the right thing to do. They just don't really give you the energy or the power to do it. You want to succeed in life, stop worrying. That's easier said than done. Give up all your bad habits. Well, we're talking about habits. That's also easier said than done. There's good things to read in all sorts of literature. But so often it fails to change our life because they're not really alive. The power of God's word within us, it doesn't just tell you a whole lot of things to do so you can try really hard. It actually energizes faith within you so that you can be bold and courageous. And God's word it, it stimulates growth. Paul's traveling his final big journey. He stops in a town called Ephesus. He loved those people there. And at the very end, there's this very heartfelt kind of cinematic scene that takes place more or less at the beach as Paul's going to be moving on. And he says this to his friends. We read the account in Acts chapter 20. And now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. It's kind of like he's saying, i got to go now. I'm under arrest. I know there's a death penalty. I've got to go, and I'll probably never see you again. But I'm commending you to God. I'm committing you to God and to God's message, his word, this message of grace, a word of grace that can build you up and help you grow. God's word is there to help us live out God's purposes for our lives. It's not a a big to-do or to-not-to-do manual. It's there to equip us and strengthen us, encourage us and help us, that we'll be prepared, ready to face life, ready to face some of its most daunting challenges. You've got everything you need for life and for faith and for godliness. God's word of grace gets us ready. It stimulates growth. And it can light the path. In the Psalms, we read a beautiful phrase, a little sentence, you probably know it. Your word is a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God wants to illuminate, spill some light into our minds with his word of truth that we can discover where we're going and what we're doing. He wants to illuminate our lives so we ha- learn how to handle the difficult things that so easily come our way. He wants to shine light in our lives. And I'm guessing some of you have gone. That's good for you up there. I ain't got any light out of this. What the heck is this all about? That's fair. Sometimes something seems really obvious to us when we read scripture, and sometimes it's like turning pages, thinking, I have no idea what's going on here. Sometimes it's slow. And yet when we soak our minds in God's word, eventually God turns the light on. And we begin to see with a different perspective. He helps us find the path. When this psalm was written like that, people are living in an age where you're walking around with a little candle or you've got a tiny little oil lamp and a wick and a little light. You can't see very far. It's not like some massive flashlight. It just gets you see where you are and the next step, kind of like the light I guess we have on our phone. That's no, not working now, I turn. See, I... I know I've got to the age you need your kids to help you do. But look, if the lights were all out here, how far is that going to show you where to go? It's not going to illuminate this whole room, is it? That's not how it works. It'll illuminate a couple of feet in front of you. And that's really the picture that we're getting here. We get enough light for the next few steps. That's what God's promise is to us. Enough to get through a next new step. The only way to get more light is to take that step and then I'm further closer to the door or wherever I intend to go. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the light to see your next step. What I would prefer is, God, would you light up my life so I can kind of see the next 10 years and make a plan and get organized and get on with it? That would be really helpful. And God says, no. But I'll give you enough light to take your next couple of steps. You won't fall over. Take a step, take a step, take a step. God's word lights the path. And have you ever used the anachron or heard it, SED, Seasonal Affective Disorder? Anybody here suffered from that, struggled with it? It's a complicated thing, especially if you live north and in a winter-type climate. It can easily lead to depression. It affects all sorts of people each winter. Some people call it the winter blues. It's caused by a lack of sunlight. It screws with your brain chemistry. It's why we all take vitamin D pills. And in the winter months when the nights are long and the light disappears, our brain chemistry gets all mixed up. Serotonin. It doesn't come out in sufficient quantities anymore. And there you go. Serotonin's meant to get you going, but it's not. And it can easily produce the symptoms of depression. And melatonin, the one we take when we're flying long distances to try and help us sleep, it's coming, it regulates the sleep cycle. It's coming out in greater quantities, adding to, in a sense, to a depressive state. The standard treatment for that sort of thing. is called light therapy. You get a, a light that you can pop in your room somewhere and use it. It begins to mimic the sunlight and change what's going on. When our oldest son, John, was studying in Sweden for a couple of years, he was fairly far north, and we actually got him one of those sad lamps that you can use. You don't have to stare at it. You just put it on somewhere where you're eating or where you're doing your work or typing or something like that. The idea is it gives you a replacement for sunlight that will begin to go through your skin and get these other chemicals up and going and working again. Reduces or at least lessens the symptoms. And it's kind of handy because there's no medication, there's no physical intervention. It's easy to do with minimal side effects. And I think some of us suffer from SED. Only I'm going to call it a spiritual affective disorder. And we're not really doing all that great. And the cause is the lack of the light of God's word in our lives. We're malnourished spiritually. In a survey I read about, and this is among people who read their Bible. So people who don't read their Bible were not part of the survey. You had to own up to being a committed, semi-regular Bible reader. For people that read their Bible, the average total time per week is 52 minutes, or approximately seven and a half minutes a day. And four out of ten people responding acknowledged they never opened their Bible once in the past seven days. I'm not guilting you, we're just talking reality. But here's habit number two. We called it first things first. Or to make it real simple, no Bible, no phone, no scripture, no scrolling. Here's what I mean. It's an invitation to resist something and an invitation, in a sense, to replace it with something else, to make a new habit. Rather than immediately wake up and sort of whack your phone to turn the alarm off and then pick it up to have a look at what's going on, instead, it's a deliberate choice to reach for a Bible first. No Bible, no touchy the phone. <laughs> no scriptures, no scrolling for the next 20 minutes while you're drinking coffee. Because here's what happens when we do the other, when we pick up our phone and we wake up. There's email there. A lot of us have our work email on our phone, and immediately we're barely conscious, and immediately the demands of work are back, sucking the life out of us, demanding that we do something, and yet God doesn't want us to be slaves anymore. Or we become troubled by fear and anger. We open some news app to see what was going on. The only exciting news yesterday was a big balloon got shot down. But, but we begin to look at news. It could be local news. It could be global news. And it either creates fear or anger in our hearts and we don't know how to fix it. Or we just get on to scrolling on Insta or something else. And we're creating some space in our lives for vanity or envy and greed. As we look at other people's carefully curated life and their picture-perfect photos they post every day, and my life doesn't look like that, why do they get it all and I don't? And we've got all of this going on, many of us, before we've put a foot out of bed or before we've opened our hearts and our minds to God's word. So here's the invitation. An invitation to a habit of resistance. To resist the lure of your phone. (laughs) It's an invitation to a habit of replacement. Changing my morning routine so that I begin with God's word before all these other things begin to concern me for the day. Remember Lindsay taught us a couple of weeks ago about habit stacking? Something you could do at the same time as something else. This could work like that for you. With your kneeling prayer perhaps in the morning. That you pray and we could read God's word right about the same time. What I really want to ask you is for this week, at least for this week to try, would you join me in committing yourself to that simple phrase, no Bible, then no phone, no scripture, then no scrolling. Now, I know some of us use your phone as an alarm clock, so we're already touching our phone. And I know many of us have the Bible on our phone. It's the one we use. We've got a Bible app. And well, then it's like, what am I supposed to do if I'm not touching my Bible? How do I get close to my phone? Well, maybe you could just try to avoid being distracted. Here's a couple of things I think might help you. If you're using your Bible on your phone, put your Bible up on the home page so it's easy to access. And you don't have to rummage around to find it. Or maybe you need to do what I do and turn off all the notifications on your phone and keep it silent all the time. That's why I never answer your call. You rarely ever get a text from me, and you get an email later. But your mother died three years ago, and I just get around to saying sorry. It's like, <laughs> if you turn the notifications off, you don't get distracted. Eventually people realize you're never going to call them and you don't care, but it's... (laughs) Or maybe you just buy yourself a paper Bible. You could go to Cornerstone Marketplace. We get loads of them in there. Now, I know what I'm going to say next just undermines everything I've said, so I'm aware of the hypocrisy of it all, saying that we've set up a Habits Daily reading plan for you online so you can use it. Some of you I know use for a Bible U version. It's a great opportunity. Put it on your phone's page, your first page, so you don't get lost looking for it. And if you want to get into the reading plan we've got, just search for FAC Calgary and add that as your church on the U version app, and it'll take you right there. Or if you use our own church experience app quite often, if you click on the resources button on the church app, it'll take you right there and you've got it. Or if all that's just really confusing, text the word plan to the number on the screen and boom, somebody will help you. There you go. Jesus once had a discussion with some religious folks. They knew their Bible inside out. They knew lots of facts and figures because they were busy Bible readers. They were memorizing as much of it as possible. But unfortunately, that became all there was to it. Just learning and reading because that's all that mattered. And Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is they that testify on my behalf. But you refuse to come to me to have life. What really matters is not how much of the Bible you're reading every day, though I'd love for you to do it. What really matters is that through scripture, we come into this lifelong relationship with a loving, living God. The question is not how much of it do you know or have you memorized. It is how is your relationship with God today? Do you know that God has forgiven you from past sin? Do you know that he has an unbelievable future for you and a plan for your life? Do you know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within you, leading, guiding, empowering you each day? And how is that possible? because we read in scripture how that happens. We discover who God is as he reveals himself to us. In all the years I've been a pastor, I've had lots of people come to see me for who knows what reason. Sometimes it's telling me they wish they'd done things differently, wish they'd chosen what God would have chosen for them, wish they'd not made some of the bad choices or mistakes that they had, wish something could change in their lives. You know what I've never had? I've never had anybody come to see me and tell me they regretted reading the Bible. I've never had anybody come to see me and said, Man, my life is such a mess because I chose to say yes to Jesus. Not really. So today, I just simply want to ask you an easy question. Will you join me in putting first things first? Because only Jesus has the words of eternal life.